You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Thank you for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. If you're new and would like to know more about my bio and beliefs, make sure you check out chris-spangle.com. All my projects are there. And this is one of them. This is a segmented edition of Now Hear This, which is a radio show that I host on the weekends in Indianapolis. And it is dedicated towards nonprofits. And one of the most important functions of a free society are private institutions and organizations that dedicate time, energy, and money towards uh, people that need help. And one of the reasons that I wanted to give you this show, even though some of it is dedicated towards Indianapolis where I live, uh, it is almost all of it is relevant. And I guarantee there are organizations like it in your city that are doing some of the same functions. But what I try to do with now here, this is to give you an idea of the problem that a nonprofit is solving so you understand the work that a free society takes. And so uh, I appreciate you listening. And, you know, even if you're out of town and you find that this organization speaks to your heart, maybe find one in your local area or help out uh, the charity here in Indianapolis. This show is brought to you by Wall Plus members. You're the reason, Wall Plus members, that uh, this network is going strong, is growing every single day and offering a different vision for the world than most other podcasts and and, uh, political ideologies, really. So if you want to support the Wall Network, then you can go to joinwallplus.com, W-A-L-plus.com. Stands for We Are Libertarians. Uh, and learn all the great benefits of subscribing, like ad-free shows, early release for episodes, the full archives. There's 1,067 episodes in the feed that you're missing if you're on the main free feed. And we just want to thank all of our Wall Plus members. So without further delay, here is my conversation with a nonprofit that is working hard to work directly with people that are in need of help. Today we are talking about a subject that is very important to me, and uh, it, you'll hear why. And uh, it is something that is really troubling in the COVID area. And uh, please take a listen to make sure you find places where you can help. We are talking to Kelly McBride, who is the executive director of the Domestic Violence Network. Their website is dvnconnect.org. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. And tell us about the Domestic Violence Network. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on today. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you. So the, the Domestic Violence Network, or DVN, we're a nonprofit organization that has existed for over 20 years to bring community members of Central Indiana together to change the culture that leads to domestic violence. And we do this through advocacy, education, and collaboration. Um, we're not a direct service provider, but we work with direct service providers to ensure that they receive best practice training and resources for their clients to ensure that they um, lead healthy and happy lives. So you actually, in in part, in doing this research, you've just put out the state of domestic violence for Central Indiana 2018 and 2019. And I think it's important to look back and see where we were. 
So we'll start there before we can understand the difference of where we're at now. So can you tell us a little bit about the state of domestic violence for Central Indiana report? Absolutely. Um, So we released that last month um, in December 2020, and it includes data from 2018 and 2019. And we collected it from various direct service providers, as well as from the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, This is the first report that we published since 2016, and some of the findings that we've seen are just um, devastating, really. We saw that, and and this is pre-COVID as well, so knowing that, you know, we're in COVID now, these numbers are going to be even higher. Um, What we do know from from the 2018-2019 data is that there were more than 28,000 calls combined to four different agencies. Uh, and that the calls outweighed the capacity with one agency saying that they had to turn away over 2,000 individuals over that two-year time period. There are also over 7,000 arrests for domestic violence battery in that two-year time period, and those that's also an underreported number. We know that domestic violence and sexual assault are underreported um, crimes that happen, and these seven over 7,000 arrests were the individuals who felt the need to reach out to law enforcement. So that does not even represent the thousands more that did not reach out to law enforcement for help. In my experience with friends that have gone through it, it often is uh, they're unwilling to call because often Mm -hmm. maybe they've called in the past and didn't have a good experience with law enforcement. I mean, how, how underrepresented do you think that number might be? Well, what we do know is one in three um, women and one in seven men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Mm. And so that's one in five individuals will be impacted by domestic violence. So if we look at the population of Marion County, which is over a million people, you know, we can estimate our numbers from that. Yeah. So that's, let's say, 300,000 versus the 7,000 calls that were actually made. That's uh, right. that's. Very sad. Um, so what, what else did that you find in this report? Yeah, we found that fatalities are increasing um, and that 65% of the fatalities were due to a firearm. Um, I sit on the domestic violence fatality review team where we review all the domestic violence homicides that happen in Marion County. So um, I know from that team that only one of the homicides that used legally the rest of the time, the gun was obtained illegally. Mm. So that's concerning to us, that there are a lot of loopholes when it comes to gun laws. Um, for COVID, we know that fatality, so we had 75 fatalities, right? Um, that increased by 85% in 2020. What, so we know that what was the number this year? We don't have the exact number at this point, um, but we do know from the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence that it's an 85% increase so far. And in just in fatalities, not not even just calls for non-fatality. Right. Wow. Do you have any idea yes. of the the? Um, and, and I've had other organizations say we don't know because we haven't gathered the data on calls. But the only is the amount of increase of fatalities. That um, we also know that there's been a hundred and twenty five percent increase in calls to IMPD that are domestic violence related since March of 2020. Wow. So those are the two numbers that we have right now to go off of for COVID. 
is it that people are just i mean it seems obvious but maybe you can pinpoint why do you think that this has increased uh, well, with COVID, we have um, a lot of stressors that are happening right now. So we have this beginning of COVID. We have the stay-at-home order. Um, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people turned to alcohol. Uh, those are all indicators um, that can lead to domestic violence. So, yeah, I think those are the three main ones. So I just think it's really important if somebody is listening and they uh, may be a family member or a friend that suspects that somebody is in a tough situation. It, it's a weird, hard position to be in because you don't want to make accusations. But, I mean, what are some of the warning signs that people outside of these situations ought to look for? And how can they intervene in a way that protects the person that's being that's in trouble? Yes, Chris, that's a great question. Some of the warning signs to look for are um, if your friend or family member is being isolated by their partner, so they're not able to do the things that they once did. You're seeing controlling behavior, excessive checking up on them, whether that's through text messages or social media. Um, Those are some key red flags. Obviously, if you see bruises on their bodies, that's another key red flag. Um, Or having to Uh, talk on the phone or text message when their partner's not around. Um, Those are things, you know, especially during COVID, because you're not necessarily going to see those bruises uh, since we're not in person right now with each other. So those are some things to look for. The main thing to remember as a friend or family member is uh, you have to leave the door open for this person. They might not be willing to leave yet. It can take up to seven times for someone to try to leave before they actually do leave. Um, and to remember that it's the, their partner that's committing the crime um, by doing the abuse, not the person who's staying is not committing any crimes. So um, there's a lot of victim blaming that goes on with why do you stay? You know, if, if he hit me, I would leave in a second. Um, but you have to put yourself in their shoes and remember, like, they build a life with this person. They might have children in common. They might not be able to work or have lost their job due to COVID. So they have financial restrictions. You know, there are numerous reasons why someone doesn't leave. Um, so as a family member, keeping those in mind when you are confronting someone or talking to them, um, about the situation that they may be in um, and and being open and supportive of them for whatever they choose. So if they choose to stay, then talking to them about safety planning um, and maybe that's having a co-word. So if they are in a hostile relation or hostile situation at that moment and they can get to the phone and call you, they might say, hey, are we having peas for dinner? And that could offset the other person to know to call 911 because they're in an emergency situation. Um, it's a tricky situation to be in if it, you're watching a loved one go through domestic violence. And and for the person that's in it, I mean, it, it's I think culturally it's clear cut when there's a a an act of violence. But I think we become more keenly aware of mental and emotional abuse, and not just physical violence. I mean, so for for someone that is wondering, am I in a situation that is that is bad, that is leading down a troubling road? What are some signs and symptoms that people ought to be watching for? For mental and emotional abuse? Right. Um, or anything that's not physical abuse, because that is clear cut, right? right? He hits you, she hits you, that's domestic violence. Um, 
one thing we know about healthy relationship is your partner should support you and they should listen to you and you should have a healthy relationship with them. So if your partner's putting you down, belittling you, not supportive of you, those are all warning signs and key signs that you might not be in a healthy relationship and it could be a domestic violence relationship. Domestic violence is about power and control and the abuser is going to use that power and control in whatever way they can. So that might be just not just because it's very severe, but it could be mental and um, emotional abuse, or it could escalate to, to physical abuse. But domestic violence might not ever escalate to physical abuse. So that is something to keep in mind that you could be in a toxic relationship and it might not be physical. I I'm going to ask a, an awkward question. I mean, I'm a Christian, and but this is something that I, I run into a lot with friends is the desire to not leave because they don't want to break up the marriage. They feel like they may not have grounds. I mean, have you run across that situation where for religious reasons people will stay in a situation, and, and how do you work through that with somebody? Um, absolutely. People will stay in a relationship because of that. I've We've seen it time and time again, um, individuals not wanting to leave because of their faith, and we, I mean, we have to encourage the survivor to do what's best for them and their family. Um, of course, I don't advocate for staying in a relationship by any means, but if they choose to stay, then we would suggest that they get individual counseling so that they can process what they're going through. We do not recommend joint counseling because the abuser can use what they learn in counseling against their victim mm. um, after they're out of counseling. We don't recommend, you know, pastor counseling or church counseling for the couples by any means, because again, he can use that information or she can use that information against their victim. Um, but safety planning is key if you're going to stay in a relationship. Um, but also that God doesn't want you to be in a unhealthy, abusive relationship. You know, that's not the principles of Christianity either. Uh, you know, you are made in the eyes of God and Jesus. So you are a great human being and you deserve to be treated with respect. So when somebody makes that decision to move on or to escape in a lot of situations, um, you know, finances play into it so much as you've mentioned, uh, just the, the leap, the fear that comes out of it. What are those first steps that somebody goes through and what resources are available in central Indiana to help someone that wants to get out? Um, so to start with, lethality increases by 75% when you decide to leave a domestic violence relationship. So the 75% of the women who are killed by their partners have left. That is a staggering statistic. Um, and because we know that, we recommend working with an advocate because they can help you with the safety planning. They can help make sure that you have the documents in place that you need. Oftentimes people leave with just the clothes on their back. Um, so keeping that in mind, working with an advocate is key. Um, resources available right now our shelters are socially distanced and they're full. So that's discouraging, but at the same time, Lily Endowment is so generous to our community and has just given Families First over $200,000 for hotel funds. Mm. So what this means is you can contact Families First at 317-634-6341 and speak with an advocate and they can put you into a hotel and work with you on an exit plan. 
In addition to that, the Domestic Violence Network received $100,000 from Lilly Endowment, or we can help you with your first month's rent or a down payment um, to get you into safe and stable housing after you exit the hotel shelter. So there are resources, um, our funders in the community are stepping up and really helping during this COVID um, situation and time. One thing is if somebody's had a bad experience reaching out for help, be it with you know legal authority, government agencies, other organizations, I mean, do you recommend calling multiple agencies or if there's, you mentioned 2,000 beds weren't available and that sounds like Lilly Endowment has has helped with that. I mean, do you just keep calling, calling, calling till you get help? Yeah, that's a frustrating thing to experience, right? If you finally have the courage to call someone for help and you don't receive it, um, I would definitely encourage you to call other people. And you can always call DVN and we can help you navigate that. Even though we're not direct service providers, um, we are trained in crisis intervention and can help you with resources. Um, you can also call 211 and they can connect you. Um, they'll know how many beds are available and that sort of thing. Um, and again, Families First is phenomenal when they come to their advocacy. So they're always a great resource. Um, but absolutely, that is very frustrating, especially if you're calling law enforcement and they're not very receptive uh, to you. Yeah, Family First is a great organization. We've had them on the program in the past and they do so much good for the community. You are listening to Now Hear This, and I am your host, Chris Spangle. Please subscribe to our podcast now on your podcast app by searching for Now Hear This with Chris Spangle. I'm speaking to Kelly McBride, Executive Director for the Domestic Violence Network. Their website is dvnconnect.org. And let's talk about some of the programs. You have both an adult and a youth program. Let's start with the adult training program. What does that entail? Our adult training program um, provides trainings. We have two different uh, factors for this. So one is providing trainings to community members on how to recognize and respond to domestic violence. So community members are um, anyone in the community. It could be a church group. It could be a work group. Um, it could be a sorority or fraternity. We do trainings with all of those people, and we do them for free. And right now we're doing them virtually. We also provide our advocates um, which is anyone who stands against domestic violence and works in a professional capacity who might come in contact with domestic violence. We provide them with best practice trainings on how to work best with their clients. Um, so that is our adult education. Our youth education is we go into middle and high schools and we educate young people on teen dating violence and healthy relationships. We know that teens, um, one in three teens will experience teen dating violence before they turn 18. So it's a very pervasive issue in our community and nationwide. And we have developed an all-inclusive curriculum um, to teach these young people. So that's an, that's an important thing. I mean, most of uh, my female and male friends that have experienced sexual or domestic violence, it happened in teenage years or in college or early 20s. How how do you reach somebody if you're a parent of somebody who is a younger person? I mean, do you have resources available or know of resources that people can can look up to really help them avoid falling into one of these relationships? Mm -hmm. We do have resources available on our website, dvnconnect.org, or you can also go to Love is Respect and look at their resources. Um, our 
our main resource is the Change Project, which is a six-day curriculum that we provide to young people. Um, we mostly do it in a school setting, but we could do it in a community setting as well if we had enough interest to do that. Uh, and we talk about healthy relationships, boundary setting, um, consent, social-emotional learning, how to have a healthy relationship, um, and all those different factors. So let's talk about your community-wide plan. What is the DVN community-wide plan? Yeah, we just launched this a year ago um, before COVID hit, and we're really excited about it. It's called Equity, Listening to the Truth, Amplifying Voices, and Changing Systems. We are looking at two long-neglected communities right now. We're looking at Black and African-American women and the LGBTQ population. They are often left out of the conversation when it comes to domestic violence, and we both know that they disproportionately um, are affected by domestic violence than their, more so than their white and cisgender counterparts. By what order of magnitude? I mean, how, how much is the disparity? If you, if you uh, know. For Black and African American women, it's 2.5 times higher hmm. is what we know. For um LGBTQ, we don't have the stats necessarily right in front of us, um, but we do know that they experience it at higher rates, especially um, Black trans women. Can I ask why? I mean, have you pinpointed the reason? I think that there's a lot of racism that goes along with it. Um, There's also a lot of of stigma. especially being a, you know, a member of the trans community, people are not accepting. And so they, they look at this individual, this person, and they see um, not a, a human being and a, a woman, but an object that they can, you know, desecrate for their pleasure, um, which is unfortunate, but we see so many black trans women who have been murdered and they're not being talked about in the community. Um, that's the only thing I can really think of is it's just not an accepted part of our society at this point. I would also think that a a distrust of authority for many reasons may play into it. I mean, are there specific organizations in Indianapolis that if, you know, let's say someone is in a, uh, let's say a black trans woman is listening. Is there an organization that wraps services around them to give them support? Or domestic violence mm-hmm. specifically, yeah. um, or in no. general, but specifically, DB. No, there's. I mean, there's not. Our the Julian Center um, has rooms available for those who are trans, uh, so there is help. But there's still, you're going to be living with other people, so there's still that stigma um, and that that fear from others of the unknown. I guess. Um, but for having just, we did, we are opening as a community Trinity house, which is for young people of LGBTQ. Um, and it's, I, I believe it's 18 to 24 and they'll able to live there. So Jenny White's the executive director. She has a long history of domestic violence, um, education. So I'm sure once that opens, that will be a great resource for this community. So what other ways are you addressing social justice and applying that to the domestic violence field? We're looking at our equity plan. And as I said, that has the intention and focus of looking at the intersection of being Black and African-American and domestic violence, as well as LGBTQ community. Um, We 
have formed two task forces as part of this. And so the, we have one for LGBTQ. Um, you have to be a member of that community to be able to participate. So we're elevating the voices of the LGBTQ community um, and listening to what they want when it comes to domestic violence intervention and prevention, because we don't know enough about it. Same when it comes to Black and African-American women, we have a task force uh, you have to identify as Black or African-American and, and be a woman to sit on that task force. And again, they are um, leading the way in what our goals and objectives are for this plan right now. So some of the things that they're looking at is uh, they don't see themselves represented enough in brochures. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's as simple as that, right? Like. Right. You go to you go to you have a designer and they go to the clip art and they're smiling white faces. And then, you know, you don't understand the impact that that may have on somebody who, you know, they don't see themselves represented. I mean, that that that's nothing that I would have thought of as somebody who makes brochures sometimes. So Mm -hmm. that's that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. uh, The final program that I want to cover, because I just think that this is so key in, in kind of looking back, you know, when you have somebody that has been, uh, has experienced gaslighting and cut off from friends and family and isolated and the lack of resources, government agencies, all these different agencies can be so hard to navigate for so many people, but especially people who are marginalized and in trouble. And they need an advocate a lot of times. I mean, it's it cannot be understated. So can you tell us about the Advocates Network and how that works? Our Advocates Network is a vast um, network of individuals who um, are part of our network. They We meet on the first Tuesday of every month. We provide best practice trainings. And then we um, uh, the advocates are able to talk with each other because sometimes it's easier to get some, something done if you know the person than if you know the organization. So they're able to make those networking connections. Um, people in our network are the traditional people you would think of, the Julian Center, Coburn Place, Families First, but then we also have social workers, um, the prosecutor's office, public defender's office, uh, ND Pride, um, we work with Black Lives Matter on some topics. So there's there's lots of different entities that um, you wouldn't traditionally think of as domestic violence agencies that are a part of our network. Um, as we said earlier, one in three women and one in seven men will experience domestic violence. So these organizations and individuals are going to come in contact with victims of domestic violence. Um, and it's, it, you know, everyone needs to know what the warning signs are so they can help. Yeah, I mean, you reach out to a friend, and if that friend is involved, a lot of times people will reach out to somebody that appears well-connected, and if the people who are well-connected can connect with each other, it, it they have somebody to call in their Rolodex. Has, has there been any discussion of or, or push into IMPD in helping train officers on how to deal with domestic violence situations. They're often the most dangerous situation for a police officer to walk into. Um, have Very highly charged, very dangerous for them. So it's a very tense situation. Um, but, you know, I often hear anecdotal evidence of insensitivity. How, how, how do we um, talk with IMPD and how can – because they're really the boots on the ground. I mean, what, what does that discussion look like here in the city? 
Yeah, so the Domestic Violence Network and the Julian Center um, provide training to IMPD. We used to uh, have this awesome program called Baker One, which identifies um, the offender early to prevent homicide and serious assault. Um, the grant that funded that, we had lost it as a city. We just got it back and we're in the process of revamping Baker One again. So the IMPD will be receiving training again on domestic violence, the sensitivities, the dangerousness of um, the situation. Um, we'll be doing that in 2021 and 2022. What about the police training center in Plainfield? I mean, it started at the, the, the beginning. Has there been any discussion maybe reaching out to them and, and expanding that to there so every department around the, the state has access to that training? Yeah, that's, um, that's a bigger discussion than IMPD, but I do know that they receive um, four hours, which is ridiculously low, but they have four hours of training right now. Um, and I do know the ICADV, the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, does go in and provide them some training. But that is something that we've always struggled to get in front of them to do more training because four hours is not enough. Um, our advocates... We don't have a core 40 program, but sexual assault does. But our advocates, um, I mean, they get 40 hours of training and IMPD gets four. Right. So we definitely need to increase that. And as you said, it's the most dangerous besides um, pulling somebody over. It's the most dangerous call that they can go out on. Yeah, I rode with a police officer in high school because I thought about becoming one. And they went on a call and he said, man, the second you put your hands on the guy, she flips, you know, and and like in no more often than not. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to beat up on the police. I'm, I really do think that more training in this area is something that that ought to be done. And it would benefit police officers it'd benefit victims it'd benefit perpetrators. So, um, well, what is the one thing that you see Kelly McBride, executive director of the Domestic Violence Network, every day in your work that you wish everybody could understand? That even though, if you listen to this program in its entirety, uh, all the stats that I gave are staggering. You know, the people who are being turned away and um, the number of homicides that are occurring, but there is help available. It just looks a little different during COVID. Um, people want to help. So reach out to 211 Families First or the Julian Center if you are in a domestic violence relationship. Or I've even had people call me about a friend or a family member if you want to talk through that as well. And, and that there's resources available. So I don't want people to be discouraged when they hear um, about what's happening currently or, or in the recent past. Um, People are here to help. We care. Our funders care. Lily Endowment is this wonderful resource that we have in central Indiana that no one else has. Um, and they've stepped up and they've really poured their resources into being able to help us further help others. Well, thank you for what you do. I know that everybody that works in the domestic violence field, um, issues of sexual assault, domestic violence, it's very difficult work, and uh, I've never met a group of people that are more caring and more motivated to help people. And thank you for what you do. I know it can't be easy. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's Kelly McBride, Executive Director of the Domestic Violence Network. Their website is dvnconnect.org. Thank you to her and her organization for coming on. Please make sure you go and support them at their website with a, a financial contribution 
or get involved if they uh, do, you, do you allow people to volunteer do you need volunteers in any way or just you, you'd rather it be funded uh, we don't really have a great need for volunteers right now during covid and we're not direct service um as we said so we do have an event night with the network in october we always look for volunteers for that we didn't host it last year but we will be this year so if you are rather volunteer i'd love to have you Great. Thank you, Kelly McBride. Thanks for listening to Now Hear This. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. If you missed any portion of our program, you can listen on our website, nowhearthisindy.com. If you'd like to have your organization featured on the show, please email Gabby at nowhearthisindy at iheartmedia.com. Thank you for listening, and we will be back again next weekend with Now Hear This.